0: Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm John.
0: Jacob Machado. I
1: almost said Father Jacob, but... Uh, not yet. Not yet, but you are less than, closer.
0: Less than 10 months to diaconate as the schedule is set now. I don't know what's changing. But. Jacob
1: is... Uh, about an hour and fifteen minutes uh, past his last final, so congratulations!
0: Yeah, uh, thank you. And we're—if uh, you hear noise in the background, that's going to be all the other guys on the floor celebrating uh, finishing comps and their finals. And exactly. Uh, so if there's noise, it's just uh, jubilation.
1: Exactly. It's the wonderful time of the year. Uh, it is funny to—you um, were in an oral exam with me two days ago, and here we are. So not you know. too yesterday.
0: Yesterday, okay, yeah. And uh, you gave me a generous grade. Yeah. I just kind of came in and. Got the one of the five questions, uh, the one I didn't really want, and just kind of vomited ideas on you instead of pausing and thinking. But
1: uh. well, I would say it was some very thoughtful and <laughs> rational vomiting. Um,
0: I appreciate it. Oral
1: exams are interesting, at least the way I do it. I was trained by um, heartless Opus Dei Spaniards in Rome, uh, which basically means that you always feel like you failed because it's like you're pressing into somebody. Like imagine we're all lifting weights and everybody's kind of you know doing a a number of reps, but you have more weight on. So I'm just putting more weight on you and the questions I'm asking, like uh, Ryan Mack uh, did a great job also like you did, but I took him just (laughs) deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and he eventually just kind of like broke and uh, I was like, that was amazing and gave him a great grade. So um, it's part of the sick kind of uh, torture of, uh, yeah, oral examinations.
0: It's funny. Cause we, uh, we prepare and we talk with each other and guys would come up and ask me, Hey, what do you think on this? And I'd give him a very measured, calm response. And then I was reflecting after the final yesterday, as soon as I was being assessed, yeah. it was like, Oh no, I've got to get all the information out and I've got to get everything father John wants heard yeah. out. I've just got to at least say it. So he knows that I have it in my head. And then everything was a little more hectic. And so there's something even psychological about kind of that that uh, assessment yeah. level to it that adds to it. But it's not bad. Uh, Father John gives us his, his pedagogy for teaching is he wants us prepared when somebody comes and uh, just drops a question on us out of the blue after mass at RCA something uh, that we can just kind of go into a somewhat intelligent uh, response.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of um, a lot of priestly life is fielding questions that you don't know the answer to, and um, I actually think one of the problems with priests. Culturally is that we stop asking questions because all we do is field questions. Mm. So when I'm with my buddies, they don't want They're not asking questions. We don't ask questions of each other, which men do in general. And, um, there's just like this kind of collapse of desire for questioning because you're so tired from answering. And, uh, so it's a big part of it is just, there's a lot of people, a lot of questions and they need to be handled rightly. And I think a lot of it is like, um, seeing how you guys deal with the question yes there's answers i'm looking for answers but it's not just about the answers it's about kind of how are you engaging the question um, which i think is kind of thematic for how we do this podcast in general of like you're not listening to this because we're not reading you the catechism here right mean, go read ludwig Ott if you want the dogmatic you know history of the church but how how questions are dealt with actually matters.
0: Yeah, as I was tempted to answer your question by saying, you know what, uh, Father John, that's a great question. Yeah. I know there's a fantastic answer, and I want to give you the best possible, so I'll uh, email it to you in a day or two. Right. Because uh, that's how, hopefully, if I don't know the answer, I will handle a question at a parish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> or you could do it, our beloved Monsignor Leone, 82-year-old uh, legendary priest, he just is like, Here's a starburst. And he's like, Did you meet Jimmy? And then boom, he's gone. So that's the other secret of (laughs) successful pastoral life. Find your exit. Yeah, you always know the exit. It's just like, you know, Jason Bourne formation for, um, you know, priestly life. It's just like, how do you get out of the, uh, you know, ladies auxiliary uh, thing without not even realizing you're there? No offense if any are listening. Probably not. But um, speaking of school and grades, uh, this podcast is dedicated to uh, Andrea Rose Polito. Who is a good friend of ours and who has uh, worked behind the scenes of the podcast for a very long time. So, behind everything, we all know this. Like, what holds the church together is women, primarily Mary. You know, the religious sisters of mercy probably run the church in general. Uh, but this podcast would have absolutely died uh, a number of times in the last five years were it not for our friend Andrea. Uh, who is a nurse, consecrated virgin, and who many of you know, She's we've talked about her, she's been on, but I'm dedicating this to her because uh, uh, in gratitude, she's going to be finishing up working with us, and uh, she's now in Washington, D.C., just finished her first year in a master's degree um, in uh, at the John Paul II Institute, Marriage and the Family, and she's studying with all of the great Communio people that I, these are, these is my, I would say these are my people, but I'm not their people. So I guess I'm just a super fan of the Schindlers and Nicholas Healy. And uh, she has a class of the another fierce Spaniard named uh, Father Antonio Lopez. Do you know Lopez? Have you ever read him?
0: I do not. Or uh, is this uh, the Thomist Father Lopez that Father Angel shares us?
1: No, this is a different one. Okay. Yeah, this is a, a priest of the uh, missionary priests of uh, uh, San Carlo, Saint Charles Borromeo. So the CL priest. Okay. And he's a professor, and he uh, had this course. And he's he's very he's tough. And uh, what I'm holding in my hands is um, an amazing um, uh, 18-page research paper that Andrea wrote that we're going to talk about today. I'm just gleaning all of her research. I so did ask for permission to do this. Saving Desire: How John Paul II's Anthropology Responds to Nietzsche's Will to Power. Wow! So you have a very philosophical mind. I thought you were the right guy to do this topic with.
0: We'll try. This and. Sounds, uh...
1: Uh, so what I'm interested in talking about today is uh, saving desire, uh, but specifically the, in- the relationship between instinct and the will to power. I've been uh, preparing for this Colorado Trail hike uh, in the month of July, which uh, Jacob's going Actually, Jacob, Father Sean, and Father um, Ra- Mike Rapp will all be on at different points. I'm doing a through hike with three guys, 486 miles through the Rocky Mountains, ending in the middle of nowhere, Durango, Colorado. Uh,
0: Beautiful middle of nowhere. Beautiful
1: middle of nowhere. Um, This is kind of a a thing I've always wanted to do. we got a lot of guys jumping on the trail at different times. um, But anyways, um, we might... uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, Well,
0: I'm going to be joining for 56, 55 miles of it. And hopefully, uh, we'll do a recording from the field. Right, that's uh, where it was, yeah. While I'm on that.
1: Right. So, um, yeah, so I actually have no idea where I was going. I'm I'm very much so... I I just ate a bunch of... um, Insects on a bike ride. I was down by the Platte, and uh, so I'm gonna. I'm kind of like. <laughs> I think it's messing with my it's brain right nat,
0: now. Nat season on the Platte. Oh
1: man, it's terrible. So, anyways, we're looking at the the relationship of instinct um, and Nietzsche's will to power, uh, and uh, we're gonna kind of just kind of go through a couple of ideas on this. Um, but desire, desire is really the question of like what moves. Oh, I know what I was going with that. So i I've, I've been doing these training hikes. Uh, to gear up for this long month backpacking trip. And I've been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson, uh, who is incredible. Um, not a Christian worldview, but definitely somebody worth listening to. And probably the foremost popular critic of um, both Marxism and then uh, Nietzsche. But he respects them both, right? And uh, he has a deep respect for Nietzsche, um, but he's going to be... Uh, also very critical of what he sees as the kind of postmodern world we're living in, which is that basically the same thing is happening. You grow up in a Christian family. You live comfortably. Then you go to college, and the university fills you with ideas. And basically that idea is the, the narrative you've been told in your American Christian upbringing is wrong. And the right one is this. Beneath everything is the will to power. That, that power and coercion are beneath everything. This has now been unmasked by by Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. Uh, and you have to not only exercise suspicion over everything you've ever been told, but you actually have to work to overthrow that in order to build up and, and to build a perfect society, so to speak, if it's Marx, or your own self-determination, uh, if it's Nietzsche or these different things. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about mm-hmm. and what Jordan Peterson is kind of in my mind right now. I don't think he has necessarily the right answer, but uh, he certainly gets a lot of things right.
0: Yeah. I have not read the paper, um, so introduce me to the scope. What is what is Andrea introducing in Saving Desire?
1: Yeah, I was looking for all the tear stains uh, on this paper. I, didn't sure, I wasn't sure if they would come through. She sent it as a Word doc via email, but I know there was many, many... Um, she's a Sicilian woman, so it's just, you know... But I remember very distinctively, we were on 285, driving back from Crested talking through this paper, and so she did a great job, and she got an A, which she's very excited about. But basically, this paper is about the relationship between desire and self-determination. So desire, uh, what is that? And then self-determination, how does desire play into me becoming who I am, who I want to be? The best version of yourself, as Matthew Kelly would say. And uh, so she takes Nietzsche, and she takes John Paul II on this point. And that's the whole paper, is really kind of John Paul II's anthropology in response to Nietzsche's will to power. So buried deep in the theology of the body is this uh, little section, I think it's just a paragraph, where John Paul II says, refers to uh, Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx as the masters of suspicion you heard that phrase before
0: i took your fundamental class of course i heard that yeah of course everything's <laughs> kind masters of masters of suspicion everything
1: it, is stolen and recycled yeah. in my this classes is, uh,
0: i mean it seems like that the masters of suspicion have come up maybe in the last four or five years it's become kind of the the main lumping of those three to discuss what's going on now kind of as a, a base level philosophy of the west yeah. especially america
1: yeah and i think that um a lot of what we've been doing uh in class and just in general, the companions, we, talk, we do talk about this stuff a lot. It's like, we have to think more deeply uh, about the problems right now. The problems are intensifying. The solutions uh, haven't worked, you know, align with this political party, do this. We have to go deeper. We really have to go deep, deeply into this. So if my mom's listening to this, she's probably already checked out by now. Um, but everybody, my mom, Mary Machado, uh, every guy in the seminary, every layperson, we need to be thinking more deeply about the situations. And we can't just respond with kind of the political groupthink of what, quote unquote, our Christian circle says, this is, this is, this is what we do. Yeah.
0: What's interesting when we do that, when we fall back on kind of the, the talking point or even just the strict apologetic, it gives us a sense of security, right. defending ourselves, but it's really only kind of reconvincing ourselves more than anything um, And it's kind of this struggle for the narrative and the narrative is what's power right now. So that's why we're, that's why we're all up in arms about fake news or CNN said this, or Fox said this, or MSNBC said this, or Breitbart saying this or whatever it may be. It's because the narrative is where the power is right now. And I think, I think we need to start wading through that a little bit more uh, individually.
1: Absolutely. So um, the masters of suspicion, uh, and today we're going to focus just on Nietzsche a little bit. Um, are three that john paul ii says um they reinterpret man and morality uh, in a fundamentally different way and that involves uh, an inherent critique of christianity which means that christianity not only is not the answer it is the problem and you see this um you see this with nietzsche is that he uh and she starts the paper with this great line because so so nietzsche uh is a, a 19th century philosopher, if you're not familiar with, actually trained as a philologist uh, in Basel, Switzerland, uh, German, uh, by birth. He is, um, uh, he writes, uh, and then in 1889, he loses his mind. He goes insane. Now the question for that is, why did that happen? It's uh, syphilis, okay, whatever. But really, when you read him and you study his philosophy, you ha- one has to ask yourself, was he just so committed to his own thought, that he that the logical conclusion is insanity.
0: Yeah. Do ideas have consequences?
1: <laughs> Do ideas have consequences? You know, even
0: even uh, the first podcast we did on on um, Rosanthe Mont and Max Shaler, I made an argument in the paper that I wrote on him that it was his clinging to his own ideas of a morality, that uh, an ethics that he clung to that more than the truth of the gospel. Right. And so that's why he changed. He changed his entire worldview to fit his. His system of ethics, Scheler. yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. So there is, and there's power. Nietzsche
0: is, you know, very similar.
1: Power and ideas. Power. I remember um, Father Joe Carolla, a uh, great Jesuit who teaches at the Gregorian, He was a chaplain uh, in Rome when I was there. I remember him giving a talk to a bunch of students when I was their chaplain, and he had just come back from Cuba, and he was talking about the power of ideas, and he was reflecting on the the banners and the slogans and what he would see as he was driving around uh, Cuba. And the, the, just the, the power of ideas uh, and the way that they do build stories. Like ideas are not just abstracted. Um, they, build, they build stories. They help interpret reality for us. Yeah. What makes us distinct as human persons is that we interpret reality in a spiritual way. Mm-hmm. So ideas are not just these things that are abstracted. They're in us. They form the way that we think. They, they determine the way that we wake up in the morning. So they're intimately connected with this notion of self-determination. Did you grow up with a dog?
0: I did not. Okay, any I'd animals? I had a hamster for a little bit.
1: You had a hamster, okay. <laughs> so that hamster, I, I've been in this long debate with one of the buyer children's um, uh maggie by sweet girl about you know how much are animals actually doing you know i'm trying to ex- distinguish like your dog loves you okay what does that mean your di- your dad loves you what does that mean we're having very good conversations 11 years old is like the greatest age ever i think i don't know if she's 11 but she's around there <laughs> right that's just like the sweet age they're not they're not bitter and jaded high schoolers yet but they're they're thinking deeply about things so your hamster whose name was Chucky. Chucky. That's a great (laughs) hamster.
0: I got it from uh, my my first grade class. The public schools uh, passed a ruling that you couldn't have animals in the classroom anymore. So Uh, my second grade year, I got to take Chucky home. Okay. And had him till maybe fourth or fifth grade.
1: So if you grew up in the 8 you're, you're probably too young for this. Early but 90s. Chucky was like instilled terror in us in the oh, 80s I've, as I've, children. Of course. Yeah.
0: I think it was a, a sick joke that the teacher named the hamster Chucky. <laughs> and my dad would probably even believe that it, it had some sort of uh, Chucky spirit in it because it would always escape the uh, enclosure and just get running around the house. And at one point it got on like my dad's headboard and he grabbed it and to get it back in the cage, and Chucky bit him. So my dad wasn't a big fan of Chucky. Yeah. And Chucky was just reacting to his own desire to escape and find something to eat.
1: So. Exactly. So so Chucky has instincts, right? Chucky's doing things. Chucky bites your dad because he wants freedom. He has this instinct to say, mm-hmm. I'm in a cage, and I want to get out of this cage. So animals, and we're, we're also animals, you know, we have these instincts. But the difference is going to say, well, what is... What does a human do with those instincts or desires? We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then how does it affect self-determination, right? We would not propose that Chucky's, the purpose of Chucky's life was that his, his decisions, the, what he did around instinct uh, was self-determining. Chucky's becoming the best vision of himself, so to speak, <laughs> right? Chucky is not. Chucky is just, he's just acting according to his nature. Yep. So he's not interpreting reality.
0: He wasn't sitting, planning the great escape. He just uh, found the weak point and said, all right, I'm going to go see what's over there. Is there food?
1: So Chucky goes for the food, then bites your dead, then runs out of the cage. We're not going to sit Chucky down and say, "Uh, Chucky, that was a... um,
0: (laughs) Think think about what you've done. Think
1: about the consequences of your actions and whether that leads to self-determination. We want you to flourish as a hamster, right? This is not not how you talk to, you know. Chucky, that was a morally impermissible act. Chucky. You know, really, really, it's in your best interest. We're doing this because we love you. Get, get you back in the cage and uh, really don't do that again, right? This is obviously ridiculous to think like this. The question then becomes, well, what do we do with desire and how do we recover a sense of self-determination? Uh, John Paul II is interesting because he is a man who is so deeply steeped in the tradition, but he also is very open to the, the kind of progress of modern ideas, and the good that has come from that, and one of the one of the things that has happened in the last two centuries, in particular, is that we've become aware of the notion that man, who is a being, human being, human person, but he also is becoming. Mm-hmm. Man is a becoming. Man is a gerund, as my old professor uh, used to say. Right? He's he's ing. He's moving. He's. You're not the same Jacob who you were a year ago. Right? Um, I'm not the same priest that I was a year ago, that kind of thing, like, things are not static. And um, the kind of classical medieval genius was to understand the metaphysics of being, right? What happened in the last two centuries is that there was a rejection of being, and and it became just becoming. Mm -hmm. So existentialism, Nietzsche is an existentialist, they're all about, there's no essences, it's just existence, and it's just about, you are just becoming, you don't actually have a nature. You don't have a being, right? So when we talk about self-determination, you really have to say, this This has to be a person who is modern in the sense that they believe that, as John Paul II would say to us, "Be, become who you are, right? That's a very interesting line. Become who you are. Nietzsche's not going to say that. But the point of all of this, the point of self-determination, which is kind of an abstract idea, is to say, that you are something, but you are also becoming something. And because you're rational and because you have free will, you have the ability to act in such a way, either to become what you are or to not become what you are. And that's the difference really between heaven and hell. I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, no, there, uh, there seems to be a kind of a false separation that we can do where um, kind of the, the real postmodern existentialist is... Uh, has no being until he enacts it into his life somehow. That it's, I become who I choose to be uh, through my action um, over time. But then the opposite would say, you are who you are, and then you're determined. Right. And a determinism isn't the Catholic view, but also a strict, like, self-deterministic, I can create myself, is not the Catholic view. As often is the case, we come to the middle, and you are by your existence as a human being, having a human nature, something. But you are also uh, your perfection in God's mind and what he desires your full flourishing to be. And that's our process of becoming. uh, To becoming, uh, entering into the beatitude that God offers us now and then in its fulfillment uh, in in eternity. And so that becoming is this really dynamic, creative, artistic process where we are both artists and what is being sculpted. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the dynamism of a Catholic anthropology and Catholic moral ethic. Um, Why we practice the moral life is not to restrict and not do bad things. The moral life in the Catholic worldview, um, as you know well, is the becoming of the full human person as you are individually uh, entering into Christ. And I just think there's so much to unpack there.
1: Yeah, there is. And I, I really think this, this question matters because going back again to the the typical, like the, the formation of the nun, N-O-N-E, right? How do we get there? How do you get to the 25-year-old who moves to downtown Denver, has completely abandoned the, Christ- the, the God question is irrelevant. The Christian upbringing is basically um, gone, at least for now. Uh, marriage prep the baptism of chi- children, the, these things, they, they kind of reawaken later on. But for you're 25, you live in your life, it's probably largely hedonistic and selfish. Okay, so you're doing that for a bit. How do you get there? Well, in some ways, you grew up with this static notion of being. This is what truth is. This is who you are. This is what This is what we do. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of break out of this in college, and it's like it's all about becoming. It's all about self-expression. It's all about this kind of recovery of this deep kind of, I don't know, existential artistry where it's like I get, to, I get to be who I want to be, right? Okay. And, and a lot of the experience of what was that like when you were told this is what we are, uh, if that was a good experience, then it's going to have more of a warrant, so to speak, and, and be kind of a ballast as you move through late adolescence into whatever. Uh, if it was a bad experience, then you're just like, see, I'm gone. Yeah. And you just wholesale embrace the life of becoming, and then you, and then self-determination is untethered from being. Self determination just becomes, well, I get to become whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. Both Nietzsche and John Paul II would reject that. They both have very specific ways of understanding what and how a person becomes, so to speak, what they are. John Paul II, we talked about earlier, it's grounded in being. It's grounded in the fact that you are you're you're given. Your existence is given. You didn't just wake up this morning and decide, I would like to exist today. I'm gonna get a coffee and kind of over coffee decide, I will self determine today. No, you are you're you're given right. That's that's really not an option that you had this morning. Um, neither did Chucky the hamster, who's probably dead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Chucky's long gone, annihilated probably at this point. So don't tell children that. But <laughs> uh, so let's go to. Um, Nietzsche for a little bit here, unless you have any more no, thoughts no, no, on that. Let's go. So the, the basic first part of this, again, I'm thinking of my mom gardening right now, being like bored out of her mind. But self determination sets the, the sets the tone for this. Now we move into the question of okay, then what does Nietzsche have to say about this? And this is what's really radical, and it's a it's a complete un, undoing of the Christian project, very intentionally, and it's just everywhere. It's in the water. It's in the air. Um, I'm Nietzschean. You're Nietzschean uh, in in deep ways that we don't understand. This is Jordan Peterson's great insight, is that this is in us, right? We believe in power more than love. And that's the key word for us today, is the will to power, is the subjugation of desire for the will to power, and we'll get into that here in a second. So so here's a couple of lines from uh, Nietzsche just to kind of set the tone here. Number one, the Church sends all great men to hell. It fights against the greatness of men. That's a line from his book, uh, The Will to Power, which was actually a collection of things that uh, he wrote that were post-hominously uh, published. The Church sends all great men to hell. So, so Christianity is not interested in greatness. Christianity uh, actually squashes greatness. It relinquishes, it destroys desire, it kills uh, that which is in us. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, somewhere else, he says, every mistake in every sense is an effect of degeneration of instinct all right so i was in a corvus coffee shop and uh you ever go to corvus i've been there a few times great coffee it's really expensive though i mean it's, i have to say like and
0: they keep getting more expensive yeah six bucks latte. you know i
1: could get it just a, a, a little cappuccino for like a euro everywhere in rome mm-hmm. and here it's like you got to pay six bucks and then you're expected to tip and it's like you gotta be kidding me but corvus <laughs> has great coffee I dropped into Corvus very briefly to work on a project at an hour to kill in between meetings and they get, I could just tell the the barista was very uncomfortable and uh, just looking at me in the, in the collar and uh, she had on her arm, this huge tattoo that said hell bound. And I was like, and I, she saw me looking at it and I looked back and she, it was a very kind of interesting (laughs) moment. So hell bound. Why, why would you put that on your arm? Uh, That's an interesting question, right? And I think that that's something of Nietzsche. The church sends great men to hell. It fights against greatness. Why? Because of the effects of degenerating instinct. So the Christian project has degenerated and destroyed instinct, right? Or desire, in the sense. Nietzsche's going to use them kind of synonymously. And so we have to say, what is he talking about, and why does that matter? Okay, so, so... you choose hell if you choose greatness, but it's better to go to hell than it is to squash your desire and to become inhuman mm. and to become decadent, as you would say, uh, in becoming a Christian. That's a very interesting starting point, is the primacy of instinct and the way that that leads to self-determination. Okay? For Nietzsche.
0: Yeah, I feel uh, not a, a direct um, contrast, but kind of in the the death of Socrates, it is better to suffer an evil than to commit one. Uh, and then Nietzsche's kind of saying, well, let's not be bound by anything and get back to our true instinct. Uh, exactly. Not a perfect, but there's, a, there's an inversion of even the the Western patrimony from the beginning of philosophy, and Nietzsche's turn in it.
1: Exactly. And the enemy for Nietzsche is not so much Christ as it is Socrates. Yeah. Like he is the, the... Nietzsche is completely anti-Socratic in the sense that Socrates glimpsed this ideal he saw something he saw reality and he interpreted it and he set the whole trajectory of the west for thousands of years this is how we interpret ourselves and come to understand ourselves in light of these transcendentals in light of in light of being itself right that's the, the the greek genius and he's trying to invert all of that and the purpose is why because true greatness lies not in the kind of primacy of love so to speak whatever that is but in the primacy of instinct and in the will to power which comes all right tangent for a second do do people still go to Toys R Us
0: I don't even know if Toys R Us is still in existence to be honest
1: okay because I was thinking about um if you want to see the will to power at work take children to Toys R Us right (laughs) Like I have a very, and I'm not talking about children abstract, I'm talking about my childhood (laughs) and my brothers. I have a very distinct memory of my father who was just an incredibly patient, is an incredibly patient human, Um, like unbelievable. And the older I get, the more I'm like, it was just heroic dealing with us growing up. But my brother and I went to Toys R Us one day uh, to get bike horns Mm. for our bikes. So this is back when we lived in Chicago, so I was probably seven, my brother's probably six. And uh, there was one condition of the bike horn. You will get this bike horn if you don't. If you don't just keep, you know, uh, collapsing the horn part and it blowing something thing in dad's ear. And my dad very calmly just saying, all right, boys, I don't want to hear these horns while we're in the store, okay? And then a second later, you know, and he's like, boys. And of course, this is my brother, my younger brother, Steve, who's blowing the horn. And then one more, and then he says, boys, I'm serious. No more I'm blowing the horns. A couple minutes pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, bike horn again. And he says, if you blow that horn one more time, it's gone. You're not getting a bike horn today. A couple minutes pass. You know what's coming. Uh, he grabs the horn from my brother. And then he looks at me and he grabs mine. And he says, you're not getting one either. And I was like, what is this? Right? And I kind of threw a fit. And Steve threw a fit. And none of us got bike horns. And we left Toys R Us very sad. <laughs> In my mind, this sums up the will to power, so to speak. It's in us. We want our will. We want our way. We want power over things. I want the bike horn, and I want to be able to blow or to honk that bike horn whenever I want. Yeah. To exert ourselves. To exert oneself. And I really believe, as a seven year old or as a six year old, because I wasn't blowing the horn. Let's put that out there (laughs) again, Dad. All right. My parents do listen
0: catholic anthropology We're communal beings exactly
1: and that's the that's the whole other lesson is like what what your (laughs) brother does actually matters for you the consequences of his actions affect you and and yours as well for other people you're not just this kind of autonomous self-determining being okay in toys r us with your bike horn (laughs) you are a part of a living community of people and what they do with their bike horns matters for your bike horn and i never got one ever and i've obviously still got to work through this in therapy so
0: now I want to see you riding down in your you know streamlined bike with a bike horn coming down, you know, like, I don't know, one of the mountain peaks you bike and just be like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Now it's funny you say that because I think I've told this story on the podcast because we had somebody sent us a bike horn, so I must have told this story Already? before. Yeah, well, everything's recycled <laughs> at this point. Anyway. So the will to power uh, is in us. Nietzsche picks up on that, and he says, this is the way to self-determination. It's the primacy of instinct. So what my dad was doing was actually really destructive and degenerating for us because he was relinquishing our instinct or our desire. Like he was saying, you can't act on, you can't do what you want to do right now because I'm telling you, you can't do that. Why? Because this is part of the moral law, so to speak, natural law that says, Thy shall not blow the bike horn in front of thy father when he says this is what you will not do in Toys R Us at age six or seven, okay? This is part of everything. Nietzsche is going to say, this is all part of the, the the kind of how messed up Christian morality is, is that it squashes instinct. It doesn't let me do what I want to do. Think about every question everybody asks us. Why can't women be priests? Why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? Why can't I do this? It's, it's all the same question. Why is... Why is the Christian claim destroying my desire? This is my instinct. This is in me. Why are you telling me what to do? You know, I think of my least favorite marriage prep couple ever. This guy said to me, and this is where I lost it, and I've told this story before, I'm sure. (laughs) He said, Father, I live for the weekends. Why can't we do Mass on Wednesdays? And I just, this was like the final straw. It was months of this, you know, I was just like, it's not about what you want to do. But for Nietzsche, he's saying it is about your instinct, but it's not instinct in the sense that it's what you want to do. And this is where Nietzsche gets misinterpreted. Okay. So he's he's more complex, he's more subtle than this. And and Andrea's paper really helped me understand this that for Nietzsche, the primacy of instinct is about allowing it to be subsumed into the will to power. So for example, let's say um I'm like, I'm going to exercise will to power tonight, and I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I want to get drunk, so I'm just going to slug down a bunch of, I don't know, natty lights or something. I don't know why anyone would do that, but let's just say that's what I want to do. That's not necessarily leading to self-determination in a Nietzschean way. The person who gives up alcohol the rest of their life could be just as Nietzschean, right? The person who sleeps with everybody or who sleeps with nobody. So it's really about self-mastery in that instinct how do i say this it's not so much about what you do with your instinct it's about how you allow the will to power to be to subjugate the desire it takes over everything the purpose of life is not just unbridled desire instinct and doing whatever the hell i want it's tethered to the will to power i become more powerful through this act so to speak. And this is why this paper is so interesting.
0: Because it's not the uh, the, kind of a misinterpretation of Nietzsche that is just falling back onto kind of a hedonistic, I will follow every passion at all times and that will be fulfilling in some way. Nietzsche actually has a much more um, focused way of saying your instincts lead you to greatness. Right. And that greatness is something that, you know, he talks about the, the great heroes of antiquity, um, and and that they had strength, they were able to conquer, dominate, impose rule, um, and lead. Right. And that's a lot different than the person who is enslaved to their passions.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is right on. So Nietzsche, again, who we're saying matters because this is in us, this is dominant, this is how we think as postmoderns. He's really one of the architects of the world we're living in, and that means us, right? Um. He's not a hedonist, and he's not a nihilist.
0: Yeah. So So what is his critique of Christianity in desire and uh, inclination?
1: Well, I think that, uh, so what he's saying here is, um, so this is just a great line from the paper. At first glance, Nietzsche's concept of instinct could be interpreted as a tendency towards hedonism or a life of desires left untethered. Instead, for Nietzsche, great power is not revealed so much in domination and control of others as it is in man's self-mastery. So part of the kind of a priori structure of Nietzsche's thought is the individualistic thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not about his bike horn or mine. It's about what I do with my bike horn yeah. and my and and do I do I become power more powerful through my own self mastery?
0: So it's a bit of an untethered stoicism, where stoicism was striving towards kind of a common ideal through self mastery. This is self mastery through my own ideal. Is exactly.
1: That- exactly. So the um. Yeah, so the, the will to power becomes the is the as she says here is the basic human drive. So instinct is totally subjugated to power. So it's not so much about I do what I want to do, that that kind of that kind of I do what I want to do when I want to do it how I want to do it, that's just hedonism. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So she's saying the the, the primary and Nietzsche that uh, is saying the primary drive of man is to the will to power. And so all inclinations come from that drive, exactly. Power, exactly. They're subjugated under the desire for more power,
1: exactly. Okay. The reason that you you the instinct is so primary is because uh, of of how it is. It's the way, so to speak, to the essence of all things, which is power. Yeah. It's the way to becoming. Because remember, there's no being. It's all becoming. Mm-hmm. Everything is in flux. Everything is just in movement. And so I'm just. It's this kind of eternal grasp towards more and more power and this is this is what underlays everything like this is what this is what makes anything meaningful is is that it's ordered towards power right so it's complicated nietzsche's hard to understand i hope that this this kind of gives a bit i'm kind of trying to keep an eye on the time here because we're running out of it already um but you know it everything is ordered towards this
0: yeah i'd say so then what is if this is the the base presupposition of Nietzsche, everything flows from the will to power, including our inclinations, what we would call natural inclinations due to human nature. He's saying there's inclinations because man wills power. And that will point us to certain uh, actions as it goes down the line. What is the church's response? Or is his critique right? Do we just squelch natural desire? Where is it rooted in the church?
1: That's great. So, yeah, so she would say, um, Nietzsche, here's the summary Desire re- is reduced to instinct, and instinct is functionalized for the will to power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, for Nietzsche, desire is instinct, and uh, and then instinct is is just functional. It serves it serves the will to power, which which is what facilitates my own self determination. John Paul II, the Catholic tradition, acknowledging self determination, acknowledging kind of the messiness of desire, right. Um, is going to distinguish, his book, Love and Responsibility, is going to distinguish between instinct and drive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to Chucky. Okay. Chucky is going to be, uh, is going to have what, what what he'll call instinct. Okay. A spontaneous way of action, independent of reflection. Chucky's trying to get out of the cage. Right. He's not trying to, he's not thinking about what ought I to do in terms of flourishing as a human person. He's just doing it. Right. Um, but he doesn't have drive in the sense of desire so so john paul ii is going to distinguish desire as is this drive or is this instinct now when he's he's talking about drive in love and responsibility he's talking about sexual drive which he's trying to help us rehabilitate in this kind of over sexualized world which just again reduces drive to this meaningless pursuit of instinctive movement towards the will to power but drive is meaningful uh because desire is meaningful and we don't take desire seriously enough, right? Desire is something, or drive, what drives us every day, what wakes the heart, awakens it, and moves us, um, is meaningful not because of the way it facilitates the will to power within us. It's because of the way that that desire is instilled within us, right? So there are desires in us. And I think as Catholics, what, Nietzsche, what we need to learn from Nietzsche is that he's he's dealing with a decadent Christianity that had rejected uh, desire, that had squelched desire, and he's trying to reawake it. He he interprets it as instinct according to the will of power. That's problematic, but as Christians, we're not the models of desirous life, Mm -hmm. and especially when it gets weird and kind of, I don't know, kind of fabricated or just like the gravitas of, of a lot of Christians or just the kind of hedonism. Uh, of of uh, a kind of a consumerist American world that these things are not inspired. No. If you got the committed Nietzschean serving me a cappuccino with Hellbound on her on her, on her wrist here, like she's not looking at me and being like, "Yeah, that's the way to true desire."
0: Yeah, because are we are we portraying uh, an ideological Catholicism, which right. just kind of gets reduced to idea and reason or are we portraying that we are professing Catholicism and here's kind of the overarching thing, but in effect we're living as if God really doesn't matter or doesn't exist in the way we express our lives in the postmodern materialist kind of consumeristic culture. Neither of these are Christianity. Neither of these are really desirous, yeah. and they leave you empty uh, kind of in, the, in this core of your humanity. Um, I think My synthesis attempt here, what I think is really interesting, the question I've been pondering uh, before this even is the relation to the fall of Adam and Eve and the temptation to be like God in light of God's plan for us to be like him, to be brought into his inner life. So God has always desired to bring us into his inner life. Uh, That was the plan. That's what Christ opened up in salvation. And we read, uh, we do not know... um, what we shall be because we, have, or we shall see him as he is. We are going to be made like gods. There's a, a small de, deification of man in God, and that's God's plan for us. But we have to receive it. It's not taken. It's not imposed by ourselves. What's the option that we took in the fall? Adam and Eve wanted to be like gods and so grasped at it right. and wanted to impose their godlikeness rather than receiving their godlikeness. And so what I see Nietzsche doing is looking at an anthropology that only looks at fallen man as the solution, or as, as the, the present reality. Fallen man has this drive to power, which is true. But we say there's an order of grace abo- uh, beyond that. I think that's,
1: that's right on, and that's, that's the best way to frame it here as we kind of try and draw all this together. So basically, a bourgeois decadent uh, he, uh, materialistic Christianity, which is unfortunately too dominant and too in us right now, sees creation without the fall. Nietzsche, the master of secession, sees fallen nature without creation. And the answer is to see that, both of those. And then a third part, like you said, which John Paul II calls the ethos of redemption. So you were created with desire, and he wants you to be a desirous person, a desirous man. And he wants you to and your desire should fulfill and expand you should actually become more desirous more erotic, you could say as you grow deeper, but the second piece that thing is fallen you can't you can't trust those desires mm-hmm. right and i i I'm you know it's it's the kid with the bike horn if my dad's like, you know there's too much emphasis on the fall, you know your desires are really good I really well let's talk about that you know kind of this <laughs> This, yeah, there's so much like pseudo-affirmation that comes from this kind of uh, a parenting approach of like, I would call it like conversational accompaniment. That, that's not enough, right? We're fallen, we need to be corrected, and we need to be brought about in a different way. Um, but that needs to be ordered towards the final and definitive thing, which is that desire was saved by Christ. Mm-hmm. He assumed desire in his human nature and lives that out. A pseudo Dionysius Areopagite will even go so far as to say there's Eros in God, in his Trinitarian life. That's what moved him into creation. So this is this is deep in the tradition to say that desire matters. Desire has is good in itself. It's fallen and it has been saved by Christ. And if that is not if those three things don't kind of move us through how we live and interpret how and how we interpret reality, then we're going to end up in one of these two extremes. Kind of yeah. a hedonistic pseudo-Christian life, or uh, just a Nietzschean um, reduction of desire to instinct, which uh, ultimately resolves itself in the will to power and, from what it looks like, insanity.
0: And so what we offer, instead of those two, uh, is a Christian anthropology and a Christian moral uh, kind of understanding where the theological virtues are primary, because it's the saving act of God entering into creation and giving us charity through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the sacraments, we receive the, the love of God inside of us, right? And that kind of opens us up to now have faith, which enlightens us to the truths of God, enlightens us to our uh, supernatural end of beatitude, which is communion with God in friendship for eternity. And that starts now in, in the sacramental life, in the relation. And that gives us a hope that we can actually achieve that, right? So those are the three theological virtues faith, hope, and charity. And that faith then giving us the the clear sight of the end of union with God, the charity, uh, which is first and moves us and then is the end we're desiring, is rooted in a sure hope that God has promised this. God who can't deceive promised this. So now we have hope to achieve this. And in this light, now all of the moral virtues, everything, it's not a, oh, I going to restrict myself. Chastity isn't a punishment of the body. Chastity is a perfection of our sexual desire in our state of life for the end, which is union with God. Fortitude is going to be the courageous perseverance towards the good in all choices, in all points of life, right? For the perfection and excellence pointing to that end. And so when we have this end in mind, the beginning and the end of charity and God, that's our creation, And we get to be creators with every single act that we make. When I choose to be generous, I make myself generous. When I choose to be trustworthy or honest or humble, I make myself trustworthy, honest, or humble. When I choose to lie, I make myself a liar. When I choose to steal, I make myself a thief. I'm actually creating myself. And am I creating that in light of the end, which will be complete flourishing in the love of God which will go beyond any type of understanding that we have of it.
1: And the power of redemption is that you're you're no longer being a thief. When when the act of thievery uh, happened and you became a thief, um, that's taken from you. And a lot of our work as priests is about helping people recover their identity in Christ, which means... You are not the identity of these decisions yep. when you acted on. So faith, hope, and charity, the structure of everything, the, the way towards our end, um, and the, the necessity of them for yep. self-determination. I think we need to be praying for that, especially in this Easter season. And
0: that desire. The desire is for friendship. The desire is for flourishing. The desire is for God. That desire comes from, from faith and comes from the charity of God in us, right? So the desire is actually what ends up moving, the will I like Nietzsche uses the will to power, but the will is nothing other than to love, to love something. And it's, so, what do we will towards? Uh, and that is our love. Our desire for something is, is united to our love for it.
1: Well said. I would give you a, an A on that oral exam. So, Great. That's well, better
0: than I actually did during my moral f- Exam, I'm oh, did kind you? of choked up because yeah. I'm terrible when I feel like I'm being assessed. Yeah, so I guess just uh, Father Noriega, come listen to there you go this podcast, you can give, him and you can give me a little extra little knock, uh, exactly. Out, but uh, well,
1: congratulations yeah. on fin- finishing finishing the semester.
0: Uh, thank you. This is good.
1: We, uh, we'll be back here with another one we're going to start kind of spreading these out through the summer um, there's a lot of travel different things but uh, grateful to have uh, Jacob Machado with me today do you have a shout out before we close yeah I'm going to
0: shout out uh, my aunt and uncle uh, Bob and Val my dad shared the podcast with them and when nice. I was talking to him. he was like hey we listened to the, the first podcast it sounded great and I was just kind of like oh, "No, no 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 people shouldn't know about this no. I know no it's good uh, so shout out to them thanks for listening
1: that's great and I would just close with where I started with his uh, shout out and a, like a super shout out and a word of gratitude to uh, Andrea Polito for her hard work uh, great paper, Saving Desire uh, How John Paul II's Anthropology Responds to Nietzsche's Will to Power but also just great friendship and um, support of, um, of this podcast over the years uh, even when priests uh, use their will to power against you myself included uh, we uh, thank you for your love and support and uh, yeah, that's it for now we'll take a little break and come back again
0: Yeah, thanks for listening. Catholic stuff. Go for it. Well, Catholic stuff you should know.
1: (laughs) Take care.